quick note before today's show. We have transformed our entire platform to respond to the current crisis and increased our production of both podcast episodes and blogs, but we cannot do so without your support. Please consider making a donation or contributing as a volunteer to support our active engagement at this critical time. Doris Swam is a researcher in the field of human rights, peace, and economic development. She was interviewed on May 5th. We really need humanitarian aid in Myanmar. Even ordinary people are struggling now. Even though there had been some speculation in the media about a coup happening, I didn't really believe it. The night before both power and internet cut out in the area where I was staying, but it still didn't occur to me that a military takeover was about to take place. So I was really shocked when I heard the news the following morning. I have never experienced a coup myself, but given the Myanmar military's record of human rights violations, I immediately realized that the situation was about to get worse, and I became very sad. At the time of the coup, I was living in Myajina and planning to travel to Yangon to meet my work supervisor. But I knew that wouldn't be possible anymore, so I moved to my grandmother's house to stay with my family. In the weeks following the coup, none of us felt like talking much. We couldn't even eat or sleep properly. We were all scared. I wasn't able to concentrate on my work. Actually, I wasn't able to do anything. I would spend all day every day checking for updates on Facebook. Before the coup, when we were only fighting the COVID-19 pandemic, I felt like it was okay since it was a global problem. But now I'm so disappointed and angry. We have to deal with the double crisis in Myanmar. It's not fair. The country's economy is in ruins and so many young people's education has been postponed indefinitely. Everything is so uncertain now. I worry about the future of my younger cousins, nieces and nephews. I have lost hope of achieving my personal goals too. But luckily, I can still continue working remotely for my organization in Yangon. In Mijina, there have been protests and the CDM since the beginning and they're still going. But most older people don't participate anymore. Only the youth are left. That's why young people are being targeted. Just the other day, 10 were arrested while organizing themselves at a market. By now, there are over 100 young people in jail here, including journalists and humanitarian workers. In addition, the KIA and the military are still fighting. So many vulnerable groups in the region need help. Women, government teachers participating in the CDM, IDBs, etc. I have been helping to channel money coming from donors abroad to local women's organizations. Otherwise, I don't go out much, only when I really have to. The gate that I need to pass to get downtown or to the market has been very thoroughly checked by security and the military basically arrest anybody they want. I always hide sensitive photos on my phone and make sure they will not find anything suspicious. During these difficult times, I don't get any specific psychological support, but just the fact that I am with my family and we're facing the situation together helps a lot. It would have been much more challenging for me to do this alone. For a long time, I have been away from home, living and working in many different places in Myanmar and abroad, never having the opportunity to spend months like this with them. So I'm enjoying it. 
As a Christian, praying and night worships also help me, as well as talking to my friends. We really need humanitarian aid in Myanmar. Even ordinary people are now struggling. Collecting money from inside the country is only a short-term solution, but definitely not sufficient in the long term. I also don't think this is the right time to discuss development, but instead to advocate for humanitarian aid to support the vulnerable people across the country. I'm very pleased to be speaking with an internationally award-winning photojournalist who has captured some of the iconic scenes of the reality in Myanmar over the last decade and whose work since the coup has landed him one of the most prestigious honors in photojournalism. Due to safety concerns, he has not granted many interviews, and even in this one, we are going to have to be careful about what we say and how we say it, which is a shame because it obscures many of his real accomplishments. But in any way, we'll do the best we can, and we're so happy to have you on and to go where we can with the discussion that follows. Yeah, um, thank you very much for having me on the podcast, and I'm, you know, I'm really happy to to talk, and uh, I hope I can talk as openly as I can, but yeah. Yeah, so let's go back a little bit through your career first, before we get to present day. You had been in university, we won't mention the field or the university, somewhere in Myanmar, and at some point you decided, according to my understanding, to drop out and become a photojournalist when Myanmar started going through its transition. Uh, what led to this decision? Yeah, um, so I was like in my final year, and I, 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 when I pick when I first picked up a camera, and it was actually like yeah, because I was, I, I was like I, I just wanted to photograph, like you know, make uh, some you know landscape, try landscape photography, or or you know like sceneries and stuff, because this is what I knew photography is about. Like you, you either do portraits or like fashion or landscapes and I was interested in like landscapes and stuff um, but then it, you know so so I picked up a camera and the good thing was um, that time there was um, like we just started having the internet and I could uh, Google it takes some time but I could Google like digital photography and I could learn even though I, I, I you know there's no 
big like foundation for photography. You know, there's like no school for photography and all, but you know, I could still use internet to learn. Um, and 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 you know, because my 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 parents were also a little worried that I would uh, change my career and once you know, like to be a photographer. Uh, so they didn't like want me to attend any like photography class or anything. So, uh, but then I saw. Um, there was a, like a free photography workshop. Uh, it was actually about photo storytelling. And I, I, I signed up for the workshop because, you know, it was free. And I didn't know what it was, like what it meant. I, I just thought it's a photography workshop. But that, that was the first time um, I, I, I was, because at the workshop, I see like all the photojournalistic works uh, from uh, from the region and from, you know, from the like, international photographers. And that was the first time I was you know, blown away. And, you know, I realized that this whole thing exists, you know, as, uh, you know, like photojournalism or telling stories with photos existed. And, and I was really interested fascinated um so so after the workshop i i i, I remember i said this to the ins instructor i said I, I want to be a photojournalist and I, I i don't know what it means but you know it's i just said that um and then uh, that was 2010 2011 and then in uh 2012 i remember like there was a bit, so dong san suu kyi like came out of our house arrest and she went around the country for by-election campaign and I decided to follow her campaign and photograph, uh, you know, like it was because it's something that I've never seen. Uh, my my parents have talked about her a lot since I was uh, a child and I've never really like, you know, seen her in person. And, you know, it was really a great opportunity to also like, you know, to try and take pictures. You know, also my friends were like saying, yeah, let's go and take pictures. This is going to be historical. Um, so, yeah, so we, we I went to um, Mandalay, I went to Molognan, I went to, you know, I, w I went all around the country following the, you know, as she went for the by-election campaign. And at the end of the campaign, I started, you know, working. Um, at the end of the campaign, I, I got an offer for to start working for an international news agency. And this is when, like, I just, you know, I realized I'm already on, in it. And, I, and that's how I started. And I, you know, I just said I will, I will go back to the university and what, you know, whatever I was pursuing uh, after that. But, but it, you know, it's been almost ten years now since I, I started. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's great. That's a that's a great introduction to where you've landed and what you've done. And you obviously went through training at Alliance Francaise, and then you went out and did your own things, experimented. I'm sure you, as far as you were able to get online at that time, looked at, ex at examples and along the way you've learned a lot and become obviously become quite accomplished this is of course an oral platform so we're going to have to encourage listeners to look uh, I was going to say we um, will give a reference but of course we can't give a reference because we're, uh, we're 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 shielding part of your identity so we'll have to figure that out after the interview airs what how what what exactly pictures we um, we, we put on and what links we give but in any case uh, as far as we're able to do on an oral platform, can you describe for the listeners what you're looking for when you take pictures? How have you mastered your craft? What is your style when you're trying to capture something and bring some message home? What makes a good picture? Um, 
like so for me so like since since i started like doing um you know photography professionally uh, as a photojournalist so i i had the because you know that was i would say like i started as soon as the country opened up and uh and but then like you know working for an international news agency like i it, i we had to cover i had to cover like a lot of um like different issues that was happening in Myanmar, and um, of course, like some of these issues involves like about the Rohingya and you know about the conflict, and uh, you know so it's it's I I I, I had the chance to come like um, you know like to, to 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 work on all these different issues like along the years. Um, so so for me, it's just like um, like photography is just uh, really just a tool. Um, it's a tool to um, like to tell stories and to talk about you know like it's because I I I think uh, you know photos can communicate at a, a you know many different levels and, and very often if if it's powerful if if it's a powerful photograph it can uh, communicate at a deeper deeper level and uh, yeah so it's 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 my my work is just about trying to tell um, the story in the best possible way that I can using uh, you know this photos as a visual storytelling tool Mm, right. One of the things I saw in, in in some article describing how you went about trying to take pictures, which really stuck in my mind, was that you were trained on landscape photos, but you wanted to capture social issues. And when I saw when I saw you describe that, then I started looking at your pictures. I saw that, and I'm not any kind of trained photographer, but in my untrained eye, it looked like that was what was happening in a lot of the pictures I saw. That there were these two elements of like a landscape that was providing context and background, and then a foreground of human emotion, interaction, some kind of story that was taking shape within that landscape. Would would that be a correct characterization, or how, how would you alter that? Well, um, yeah, so, like, like um, sometimes I would do, like, landscape photos as part of a larger story, and since, since I started, um, uh, like, you know, working as a you know visual storyteller or photojournalist, you know, uh, it's 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 it, the main the one main thing that I always fascinated by. Uh, or, you know, like to, one thing that I'm really interested about is just people, and this is what I like uh, photographing. And I you know and uh, like it can be like very very often it's like ordinary people uh, living in extraordinary life uh, or you know or, or, or people from like um, yeah different you know the most remote areas in the country but it's always like uh, about the people uh, and this is so I I always try to get like as close as possible to the people and uh, this this is really what what I try to focus on Um yeah, so that's why, like, uh, I mean, like, sometimes you'll see, like, some landscape, um, uh, like, you know, when I'm, like, trying to take a, uh, take a step back and stuff like that. But, you know, it's, it's, it's always about people uh, that I photograph, yeah. Mm, right, and it's because it's about people. Another of your tactics or your strategy when you go and photograph, as I understood from what I read before, is that you like to actually live with the people that you're photographing. And this is apparently uncommon for photojournalists coming into a place where they often stay at hotels or stay away. But for the most part, even in very difficult places, which we'll get into in a moment, 
you've insisted on actually staying and living with the people as you photograph them. Why do you find that important? I think like, um, so we, I mean, like, you know, as a photographer, like I, I, I'm, I can, you know, I, when I go to like photograph, uh, like, you know, a group of people in, a, in their living their own life in their community, uh, I'm of course like a stranger coming with a, you know, camera and, uh, you know, coming into their privacy and like, you know, the best thing I can say is I want to take your picture and I want to try and tell your story. And, uh, if, you know, like, but, but I, 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 I think like in the pictures, um, like it, it, you can really tell how much, you know, how close you get to the people or, you mm. know, how, how much you understand about the story, you know, because we're not just like capturing things as it is and like showing, I mean, of course, like we try to capture what, like, you know, as a photographer, I try to capture what I, you know, the what I understood of, you know, of the story or about the people. So I think it's really important for me to, you know, it's it's to not just like go in and start like clicking or you know pressing the shutter button. Um, it's it's important for me to like, you know, it's it's just like you know, as, as I've said, it's, it's because it's like the camera is just a tool. So, uh, so it's not about like it's not even about photography. It's about like you know communicating with these people. And getting to know them and uh, trying to like you know tell their story in uh, you know the, the most like justifiable way. Um, so I think it's really that's why I I, I like to um, spend time you know so when I go to like for example when I go to um, yeah like this place that this you know this this long term project that I've always uh, that I've worked on for many years I you know I would always go back and I you know I would know uh, the, the people there and uh, you know yeah so it's it, I mean I, I also like really like through photography it also gives me the opportunity to like uh, learn about you know them and learn about the stories and it's it's not yeah you know, I think this is actually the greatest thing about my work uh, is that uh, my job is that like you know I get to learn all these stories from all these different people and yeah like so it's that's why I like to spend time and uh, you know to be in the be in the crowd you know, be, be with them yeah Mm, mm, right. And you've also described how you much more prefer doing in-depth reporting than just covering a story and moving on, which uh, should bring you well-suited to the podcast because this is a long-form discussion, not a five-minute soundbite. So kind of similar methodology in, in, uh, in that approach. And just as you are trying to capture many different scenes and people and, and bring their realities, so also we're trying to do with the different voices that we bring out there. And along those lines, you... Through your photojournalism work in the last 10 years, you have traveled extensively throughout the country of Myanmar to all different kinds of communities and places uh, that, that probably you, you would not have any reason or access to go otherwise. So can you say a bit about those travels and that experience and what you learned from that, what was uncomfortable, what was revealing, what was it like to uh, undertake such extensive travels as a photojournalist? Yeah. Um, so I was like in my final year, and I, 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 when I picked, when I first picked up a camera, and it was actually like yeah, because I was, I, I was, 
like I, I just wanted to photograph like you know make uh, some you know landscape try landscape photography or or you know like sceneries and stuff because this is what I knew photography is about like you you either do portraits or like fashion or landscapes and I was interested in like landscapes and stuff um, but then it, you know so so picked up a camera and the good thing was um, that time there was um, like we just started having the internet and I could uh, Google it takes some time but I could Google like digital photography and I could learn even though I, I, I you know there's no big like foundation for photography you know there's like no school for photography and all but you know I could still use internet to learn um, and, and and you know because my, my, my parents were also a little worried that I would uh, change my career at once you know like to be a photographer uh, so they didn't like want me to attend any like photography class or anything so uh, but then I saw um there was a, like a free photography workshop. Uh, it was actually about photo storytelling. And I, I, I signed up for the workshop because, you know, it was free. And I didn't know what it was, like what it meant. I, I just thought it's a photography workshop. But that, that was the first time um, I, I, I was, because at the workshop, I see like all the photojournalistic works uh, from uh, from the region and from, you know, from the like, international photographers. And that was the first time I was you know, blown away. And, you know, I realized that this whole thing exists, you know, as, uh, you know, like photojournalism or telling stories with photos existed. And, and I was really interested fascinated um so so after the workshop i i i remember i said this to the instructor i said i, I want to be a photojournalist and i i don't know what it means but you know it's i just said that um and then uh, that was 2010 2011 and then in uh 2012 i remember like there was uh, so dong san suchi like came out of our house arrest and she went around the country for by-election campaign and I decided to follow her campaign and photograph, uh, you know, like it was because it's something that I've never seen. Uh, my my parents have talked about her a lot since I was uh, a child and I've never really like, you know, seen her in person. And, you know, it was really a great opportunity to also like, you know, to try and take pictures. You know, also my friends were like saying, yeah, let's go and take pictures. This is going to be historical. Um, so, yeah, so we, we I went to um, Mandalay, I went to Molognan, I went to, you know, I, I went all around the country following the, you know, as she went for the by-election campaign. And at the end of the campaign, I started, you know, working um, at the end of the campaign, I, I got an offer for to start working for an international news agency. And this is when, like, I just, you know, I realized I'm already on, in it. And I and that's how I started. And I, you know, I just said I will, I will go back to the university and what, you know, whatever I was pursuing uh, after that. But, but it, you know, it's been almost ten years now since I, I started. Uh, yeah. So. Mm, yeah, that was actually that leads into my next question, where I was wondering what it's like for many of your subjects 
when you're taking the picture and then conversely what it's like for those viewers within the country who see it. Basically, this is looking at both sides of the camera. So as you're preparing to take a picture after you take it, the subjects, the people that are behind the camera that you're capturing, what their reaction is. And I'm sure it's not one reaction, it's diverse. And then once that picture is finished and printed, what you've learned about the reaction in the country to some of your your photography and your work. Well, yeah, that's why I, I I think it's really important for me to like try and understand the you know this you know that's that's why it's important for me to just like you know walk in as a photographer and start like shooting, uh, start like making images. Where but that's why it's really important for me to try and understand the story myself, so that uh, when I try when I when I uh, when I take the pictures and when the pictures are published and when the story is told, uh, you know it's it's it like uh, you know people really need to understand it uh, in the most accurate uh, accu- you know like accurately possible way uh, and. And you know, so it's, it's you know, it's like like for example, when I go to like a drug uh, shooting gallery in uh, in the Jade Mines, there like you know, people really know um, that you know the, what they you know like they, they, they don't they, you know they're not sure um, like you know they like being photographed, but then I try to explain uh, what I'm doing and uh, and you know, and then like you know some some people they want to. Like you know, they know that this is, uh, you know, it's not like it's not it's it, it's not a good thing they're doing, but but mm-hmm. then at the same time they want people to know that this is happening. So you know, like they're willing to like have the picture taken, uh, you know, just so that like you know other you know people in other places know what's happening in Pakistan. And yeah, so it's I, I think it's it's uh yeah you know like it's it's sometimes like uh, for example in. Um, in the Rohingya camps, it's it's always like quite um, difficult to you know like taking pictures there and trying to tell a story because the like most of the you know people in Yammer had like a very different view on the Rohingya issue, so yeah, like they're really these you know tricky situations yeah, where I have to be really careful with how I portray them and how I you know how I present the story. Mm, and do you know anything about how your work has been received by a Burmese audience? Um, yeah, like it's, it's, I think like, like, for example, when, when the, like, you know, some, some stories like, 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 uh, like, like the Jake Mines, uh, you know, the, the audience were like really, uh, well, when it was like, I mean, it was mostly published like abroad and, uh, and, uh, for foreign media, but then when it was published, uh, within Yama, then like, you know, I, I could see that like many people were uh, shocked, uh, to, you know, to learn, you know, this, you know, like, you know, learn about this and and like you know, yeah, the people were like, also, you know, the, some people say, oh yeah, no, we we never knew like this is you know this this existence this happens in our country and you know it's it's I mean like it's in 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 this situation I'm very happy to see that like you know uh, like that this you know like people learning something through my mm-hmm. photos, yeah, where um and you know and and in. Yeah, difficult stories. There's also like difficult stories, like you know, like for example about the Rohingya, and uh, I, you know, there's one time I I got like a lot of, you know, I took a picture of um, like a, a 
you know, Rohingya mother and uh, with her malnutrition, uh, her baby suffering from mal- malnutrition. And that time, like, even though I, you know, I thought the picture was very like strong and um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like the story is heartbreaking as well. Um, but like, you know, many people, they had a very different view, uh, you know, towards Rohingya. So, you know, there was a lot of, I got a lot of like mm. bad uh, command and criticism as well. Uh, I mean, I, not, you know, not, it's not me, but it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, like, yeah, like it's, there are like different issues and different reactions from people, of course, yeah. Right. So you've referenced two of the biggest stories that you worked on with Jade and Rohingya. And so I want to take them one by one and learn a bit about your work and these issues before we get to the present day issue of the coup, which um, assured listeners we're definitely getting to because that's, that's also quite interesting and important. But looking at the experience in documenting the Jade camps in Kachin State, you note that this is a, a, a multi-billion dollar industry. It's estimated at $31 billion. It's a figure that we can't even really understand what that looks like. Uh, it is. It has been noted as being half of the national revenue of Myanmar, so that puts things somewhat into perspective. Can you share something about your initial impression upon arriving at these jade camps in Kachin State? Well, um, when I first arrived there in 2013, I was like, you know, it's um, like when I got to Pocket, um, the where the jade mines are, I, you know, I was like, I was, yeah, I was blown away to see this like lunar kind of landscapes and all these, like, uh, like you know, like and, and people appear really small. It's like. Uh, it's like it's almost like ants going over uh, uh, you know a, a block uh, a sweet candy or something like that you know but but then it's it uh, in, in my camera's view finally it appears like that and then there's all these like machines and um, you know it's it's just like it's it's really like uh, something that I've never seen before and 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 you know over there they say like you know mountains disappear within days or weeks and then you know and it, it becomes like we you know big lakes and so you know let, you know there's really no uh, normal like normal landscape uh, you know in Pakant because it's yeah really heavily mined uh, with hundreds and hundreds of um, like vehicles uh, and mining machines uh, which are really big and yeah like so um, I mean at, at that time I didn't know about the figures and the numbers but you know but I I, I, I knew that like this is really something big but uh, mm-hmm. not, many, not many people know about it and know you know know the scale of it like from 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 my point of view like before getting there myself like you know Pakan is known as a place for where like you know young men would try you know go there to become you know with with a dream like to find a stone that would change their life mm. uh, so you know everybody wants to go there and become mm-hmm. a lauban uh, you know lauban is a word and they call there for like uh, it's a chinese word they use there for you know people for like uh, rich people uh, so you know you know people would like young men would go there with a dream to find the shortcut to wealth and uh, and so you know like but then when, when i actually when i actually arrived there it's not all that no, it's not all that story anymore. It's just, it's really like tough, like terrain. Uh, the work looks very like deadly. And actually like people, like hundreds of people die every year from like lens, lens, you know, lens, landslides, uh, especially in the monsoon season. 
And uh, there's a lot of like drug uh, issue as well because heroin is cheaply and almost openly available. Um, yeah, and, and then there's com the, the conflict uh, between the Kachin Independence Army and the Myanmar military that's been going for many years. So yeah, I, 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 I found myself like, um, at, you know, at, at the center of this story mm -hmm. with all these like you know different issues uh, mm -hmm. and then of course like 31 billion dollars is, is is the number that you know came uh, later on in the report by the global witness and yeah yeah it's, it's just yeah really uh it's you know it's, it was really um you know incredible and uh, shocking that this kind of uh an industry still exists in in the you know in in this you know in the 21st century yeah, for sure. And you mentioned how when you went there, you didn't quite know everything about it. And to piggyback on that, I think of all the issues that were coming out of Myanmar and what was a very eventful last 10 years, this was probably not in the top five or possibly even the top 10 of the issues that were being talked about and reported on, concerned over. Of course, those who knew about the Jade issue knew how incredibly important it was and how many elements were brought into it, as you learned when you reported there. But it wasn't one of those lead carrying stories. As and, and to be fair, there were a lot of other important things going on in the country. But you you referenced all these things that come into it that you have uh, you have so much heroin there. Some workers are actually paid in heroin. You have the IDPs, people being displaced because they they live around that area or near slave labor. Uh, extremely dangerous conditions. A lot of the ethnics are the ones who are facing it. And uh, despite this being a a projected thirty one billion dollar industry, there's not even enough infrastructure there for a basic school or electricity twenty four hours a day. So the inequity is also quite shocking. And uh, to bring it into more of a, a political landscape, even geopolitical, and perhaps where we are today, uh, you. In your reporting, it was referenced that during the transition period, Aung San Suu Kyi was quite concerned about what was going on in the NLD, about the jade mines, and wanting to wrest control away from the military, who was equally concerned that they would have to get as much as they could as fast as they could so uh, before they lost control of it. And that there, one of the things that really struck me in reading, learning more about it, was this uh, this idea, this push that that there was a desire to want to share access and make it more equitable and make sure that the different groups were also receiving their fair share. And I was just looking at this and thinking, like, why would uh, rich Chinese businessmen or powerful Burmese generals, why would they ever want to give up what is this golden piggy bank that just keeps producing and keeps producing? What incentive would they ever have to want to share this and decrease this kind of endless source of profits that are breaking the backs of so many people underneath them? And uh, looking in, from that perspective, it seems really quite depressing. Yeah, no, it is like also, so yeah, it's like, I mean, thanks for mentioning all these, um, like important issues and factors around the Jake Mansion. And yeah, and of course, like all these like billions of dollars, uh, the biggest issue of, you know, in this story is that like, you know, like apart, you know, beside all the, 
um, like you know the the drug problem, the conflict, and the, you know and the, all all the human rights abuses is, you know surrounding the story. Like the one of the biggest uh, issues is all, all these billions of dollars like uh, going mm. away without you know like the the country actually uh, you know getting anything through the taxes because most most of this the, the jade has been. Um, like uh, yes, smuggled across the border, and you know the money was you know, going directly into the pockets of the people with like links to the uh, military, um, you know, military and uh, you know and Chinese like Chinese companies that are uh, backing up the you know Myanmar company Myanmar companies from abroad, and you know so it's 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 all these like money could have been uh, you know spent in uh, mm. in, in the rebuilding of the country, yeah. but no, it was all you know it was all like going away, just disappearing away, yeah. Right, and uh, reference before this interview, we share a mutual friend in Motunaung, currently the Deputy Minister of Energy and Electricity in the NUG. Uh, I had a prior interview with him, for those that are interested, and one of the things that really struck me from talking to him and the perspective he shared was how focused he was on in seeing natural resources as a key area that, if managed correctly, given the wealth of natural resources in Myanmar, could profoundly lead to peace and sustainability and what he had spent so much of his career working on. And certainly, the, uh, he's looking at natural resources across the country and in, in all areas. But if you just hone in specifically on jade, that's certainly a part of his, uh, his, his field of what he's examining and where how mismanaging something like jade is leading to greater inequity, greater instability, greater turmoil and conflict, but if managed correctly, can do so much for so many people. And what I'm wondering now, and you might not have the answer to this, but I'm wondering if you've heard anything in the last nine months since the coup about the status of what's going on with these jade mines at the moment. Um, I saw that, like, uh, like during the when, when you know when there were protests um, across the country everywhere, like there was also like protests in the uh, jade mines, and I, I see like all these um, jade miners who were mostly like you were normally mostly only interested in uh, finding you know raw jade stones. They were also very much involved in the protests, and uh, it was very strong. And there was, of course, there was like the crackdowns uh, by the military, and you know, so it, yeah, it was like Parkham was also uh like part of the whole uh like because normally like uh, whatever some you know whatever happens in other parts of the country in, in Pakistan is just about like you know the the mining continuing and uh mm. you know people just want to keep mining but uh yeah you know yeah in the past nine months like they've been um they very much involved and i i i i um actually like it's the last time i heard um about Pakistan was when they were like when they cut off the like uh, telecoms in uh in, over there and mm -hmm. since then mm -hmm. actually I, I haven't heard much mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm. right okay so moving on to the next area of sensitive subjects you covered before the coup is rohingya and you went to those camps and took pictures of a reality that uh, many burmese back home in the cities didn't necessarily want to see 
And when you went to these Rohingya camps, you made the decision here, as, as you did in the Jade camps and other places, to stay locally, which meant that you were actually staying in the camps among the people. And of course, they're very fraught relations given recent history between Bamar and Rohingya. So I'm curious what it was like for you, the experience of staying side by side with Rohingya, not just photographing them, but living among them for your time while you were there. Um, well, I, I was, you know, because um, you were, well, I mean, I, I mean, one, like I, I don't, uh, I don't uh, speak the language. And uh, so I have to work with, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, a translator or a fixer who would like, you know, help me go around within the camps and, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, like, and show me where, you know, where things are happening in the camp. And, and also, you know, so that's why it's, it's, I need to uh, spend even more time, uh, you know, look, uh, looking into this and also, but, but, uh, but uh, like there's uh, every night I have to like, you know, I, I would be like spending all day there, but I, I have to go back, go out of the camp every night because, you know, like the, by seven o'clock, the camps would uh, close for visitors. Um, yeah. So I, you know, but, but like, I, I think I've, I felt that like, you know, it's this story, like it's, it's uh, like, you know, it's quite, it's also like the, the issue has, it's been like, uh, you know, very differently viewed um, among other, you know, most of the people in Myanmar. Um, so I need, and, you know, like me being, a, a, you know, I, I'm also, because I'm also in Myanmar or Pama, so I, I also need to understand myself what the story is. I need to, like, you know, talk to as many, many people as possible. And as I need to, like, you know, see, because many people were saying, oh, you know, all the stories coming out of the camps, uh, all the stories about the Rohingya are mostly, like, you know, biased uh, reporting from international media. But, well, I, like for me to, you know, go past that, I have to, um, I, you know, I, I believe that I have to talk to as many people as possible and spend as long, you know, as much time as possible. Yeah. Mm, right. And how was that experience like? We, we talked a bit about going to the Jade camps and how the landscape and the human drama that was playing out in the Jade camps, what an impact that made on you personally, and then how you were able to capture that feeling and impression that it made on you into your photographs. Rohingya is a very, uh, Rohingya, the, the people, the camps, the geography, everything is very different from the Jade camps in Kachin. And yet the similarity is it can also make, uh, I've, I've never been to either, but from what I've understood, it can make a very profound effect on someone arriving there even within the first five minutes. So what personally, what was the experience of coming into uh, interaction with uh, Rohingya and the Rohingya camps for the first time? What made an impression on you? Well, um, like, you know, because I was, uh, it was, I, I remember this trip in uh, 2014 and when I went there um, and there was uh, like a huge uh, health crisis in the camps uh, because because uh, the authorities and the locals, like they kicked out uh, um, some of the you know uh, the NGO uh, operations that were like you know going on uh, inside the camps, like you know like the the, the NGOs that were like uh, providing healthcare services to the to the IDPs, um, and, you know they, they had to stop the operations. So like that time, there was a lot of like um, like deaths and you know sicknesses going on in the camps. Like people were dying from like. No, um, you know, like minor sicknesses, like just like, uh, like you know, like fever or cold or diarrhea, 
and I it's it was I I I was very um, like you know it's it was it was very saddening even for myself like to you know to see like uh, that this was happening in our you know in our own country and you know it's and what was more saddening was like um, and you know what was really sad was not only this was happening but you know uh, like all the all my people, um, you know, the majority of the people, uh, you know, we all like, you know, majority of us are like Buddhists, you know, and we're supposed to have like Nieta and Guruna, but you know, like men don't, people don't have that, uh, you know, like they didn't have that with the Rohingya and it, were, it was, uh, there was a big, you know, I really couldn't understand why, uh, you know, like why, um, you know, there was this, you know, like huge mistrust and, Oh, that, yeah, so I was, um, so I, I wanted to like, you know, tr in, in that story, I really wanted to try and tell, tr tell the story in a way that, you know, like it's some, you know, in, from a universal point of view, you know, something that many people can relate to, like, you know, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was quite tough uh, mm. working, working in this. Yeah, that's interesting you say that because <clears throat> I, I was in the country during that period as well. And that was the thing that stands out to me was that, uh, as people know, and as we talked before this interview, my background, so much of it is with, from the monasteries, the meditation, the different traditions. And um, one of the things that really blew me away when the Rohingya crisis hit was the lack of compassion, the lack of metta. And I felt like even if one is holding on to a different reality or arguing that this didn't happen in this way, it happened in this way instead, there's a way to say, well, you know, we, we um, uh, in terms of how the conflict has developed, you know, I hold on to my view and, and, uh, and, and I think this is where the media is missing it. But you can express that while still having a basic compassion for human suffering and having the meta manifest in a way that you recognize that a fellow human being uh, not even human being, you could just say a fellow living organism in the world was suffering and that someone who had spent their whole life cultivating metta and wisdom did not want this suffering to proceed. And I was really startled by how seldom I was able to find that view expressed. And even if, if one knows the traditional way that the Buddha uh, encouraged metta to be spread and the way that it's still done at monasteries where you start with a um, a, a, a respected person, then you go to a, you, you go on to a neutral person, and etc. You go down the line. Eventually, you you try to send metta even to someone you have difficult feelings with, and not seeing that practiced was really shocking. Even as I say, even if one is going to hold the different views of of what happened when and to whom, and if they're really a citizen or not, leave all that aside. But just having the basic human, or you could say the overtly Buddhist. Um, compassion for a fellow human, regardless of the circumstances. And uh, it's interesting that in your work, you tried to cover an angle that would perhaps bring this out. And we're not going to discuss exactly the, the specific story you did cover, because that would that would be a bit too specific in terms of um, what uh, what you're working on and 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 the nature of it, but um, but suffice it to say, I did see it and it and I, I completely see how what you what you were covering was really a basic element of people's emotional and individual stories universally across time and space and religion and culture and such. I didn't know that that was being done intentionally to want to 
encourage some kind of meta or compassion to take place, but I can certainly see that now. What was the reaction? Did you did you feel that that it did have that impact? Um, that that it did awaken in some people some sense of compassion and and meta that that had been absent before? Yeah, no, it did. Uh, actually, it was um, when I, I was very when I was showing this work uh, in many different places, especially within the country, and it it was it was actually like shown in uh, you know in public places and uh, you know as a projection and 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 I I could. See see that like uh meant despite the story being about ranger I, I i could feel that you know the the reaction there was a very like emotional reaction from the people and that point uh it looks like they have forgotten you know the whole like debate about the ranger or bengali or all these like terms and words and historical stuff and where they were just uh focused on what's like happening um you know like what you know what the story is about and it's because it's it was about like it was you know it, anybody could relate to like you know to the story where it's mm-hmm. about you know it's about like family reunions or like you know, connections and or you know so it's it's it, when you know so I I I I I felt that I could I you know I, I'm really I was really satisfied with that work um, actually because I've covered a lot of stories in the you know about the, about the ranger but that that was the one work mm. where I felt that you know it's it's it was it was quite good uh, for the people to see because. Um, I mean, like you know, because there was a lot of reportage by the main mainstream media uh, on the Rohingya, and it's, it's you know every time it's always like the you know the the victims and everything. But but in this story, like it's something that Myanmar people could also relate. So in that sense, um, I think it was it was a different reaction, and I, I think it's a more positive, a more hopeful one. Mm, that's great. That's great to hear that reaction. And just a couple other things to touch upon before we get to the events since February 1st. You referenced at the very beginning of the conversation that you had the chance to follow Dong Song Suu Kyi on the, on the campaign trail early on. And that this was, I mean, she's obviously, she, at this point, she was a democracy icon. And But personally speaking, you mentioned how she was just beloved in your family. So what, and, and at this point, you're, you know, you're basically a nobody. You're, you're just holding a camera just trying to get a good shot, trying to figure out what you're doing with your with your life and your profession, uh, and 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 being in proximity to her. So, what was that experience like of 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 being closer to you know something someone that was somewhat of a living legend? in that time and trying to capture these pictures and did you and then in later periods did you have more chances to um to photograph her as she became more of a public figure well um i think yeah so i so when i when i put when i photographed this 2012 by election campaigns you know it's it was something really very special uh, for me and it was you know also special for me like to uh, witness um you know myself as a you know as as a, you know as somebody who you know was Myanmar and who grew up in Myanmar but you know we we like um for you know when i was a child i remember like uh, like 
I, I knew, I remember the, you know, stories about how, you know, it's even dangerous to have like a little picture of uh, Aung San Suu Kyi or, you know, General Aung San in your wallet. And, you know, mm, it's not mm. like, it's, that's not very uh, uh, safe thing. Uh, mm. You know, so uh, when I when I actually had the chance to see uh, her like uh, out there with, you know, and it was like a reunion, you know, mm. it was uh, uh, many, like there was, you know, these like large groups of uh, people, um, you know, actually like all around the country, like different, uh, you know, different ethnic groups and different people when they were like, um, like welcoming her as she comes to do the by-election campaigns. Um, and, you know, it was, it was something really special. And I, I, I think, you know, that's also what made me um, like um, like want to like continue like you know with, with this work like it's mm-hmm. you know, it's not just about um, her or like you know it's all, all the opening up above the country but I, I could see something really hopeful um, you know as also you know for the country it was like just because it was just opening up and uh, you know, so it, it was really special um, but then like over the years uh, like it's it's there was like we we it felt like we were, you know, we were, we were like um, challenged with uh, or tested with all these like different, you know, multiple different issues, um, like you know, like the Rohingya, and then the, you know, like anti-Muslim uh, sentiment across the country, and then all this like, um, um, like uh, you know, uh, ultra like nationalist groups, and so it's, it's all like just like you know, several different issues came along and. Um, like so, when I photographed her again in 2015, it was and I felt that it was um, it was it becomes different, uh, mm. like you know, and even the election campaign. It, I mean, it was still very strong. Like people, like very you know, people show a lot of people like support her, and almost mm-hmm. the whole country support her. But it, you know, it was it was not like that reunion that mm. I photographed in 2012. Um, now it's a lot more complicated. Um, and there's a lot of layers and a lot of, you know, so it's, it's, it, it was different. Yeah. Mm, that's very interesting. Yeah. Th- thank you for sharing that. And the last thing I want to mention before we get to current events, <clears throat> you would just mention to me before we went into interview, uh, about going to Paok Monastery in, um, Piolin and, uh, some, just some backstory there. And this is not, uh, a, a, an importance of topic like the other three, but being, having a background of, uh, before the coup, at least this was a platform that went into a lot of Buddhism stories and we still have uh, a lot of meditators listening. I think this will be a, a nice thing to include about your, your experiences at, uh, at Paok and who you uh, photographed there. Yeah, like so, I was um, I had this assignment to to make a portrait of this architect, and I was I was when my editor like told me the place to go, it was quite uh, I was quite surprised because this architect is a Vietnamese uh, like architect, and he's actually a really well known um, architect, and he has like a big architecture firm in uh, Ho Chi Minh City. And, uh, but then he is like where I was, my, when my editor said like, oh, you should go to this Buddhist monastery to photograph this architect. I thought maybe does, did he build the monastery? But actually, no, he was, he's just like, he's meditating there. And he has spent like two years, um, like, you know, in this, in this monastery, like meditating. And, uh, I, I, you know, it's, it was really interesting. 
to see like someone like that committed um, you know because when you're like a successful um, uh, you know like professional like an architect and when you have like that, that sort of a firm like it's you know, you, I'm sure you must be busy but when when I talked to him he was saying you know at my firm it's the one when, when I he said like when when I uh, when I, uh, when I recruit like architect, architects to work at my firm, or like, uh, 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 like the first thing he says is that they have to meditate like one hour uh, before going to work, and, <laughs> and, then, you know, and then, and everybody has to meditate like if they want to work at this firm. So he's really like committed to meditation, and his uh, his wife and also his uh, his child like also you know joins him at the Buddhist monastery, and they would join the meditation as well. So he spends like most of the year. Uh, in Pa'at than uh, at his company. So it's really amazing, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Wow, that's great. And did you personally or your family have much of a background in Buddhism or meditation? Well, um, yeah, like when I was in uh, high school, like my at my school, my our headmaster would always, uh, you know, the principal of the school would always like ask us to meditate, like at least like 10, 15 minutes in the morning every day. Yeah, so that's, you know, I had a bit of, practice back then yeah hmm, yeah yeah great so moving on now to a more serious topic looking at the coup since february 1st and some of the work that you've done since uh the coup was initiated on in february so just looking general at first you know when the coup broke on the morning of february 1st and you're a photojournalist I'm sure in your mind, you start, like everyone, start to reorient yourself of what does this mean? What's going to happen next? And then perhaps several hours or several days later, where do I fit into this? Who am I going to become? What am I going to do? So take us through that kind of internal mental formulation in the hours or days after that happened. Well, um, like, so I I learned about the coup like at 6 a.m. in the morning when I got a call from my uh, colleague um, at the New York Times. Like he she called me and she said like you know there's been a coup in your country. Like she's calling mm. from uh, from another country, mm. and I was like I mean as I, I, like I couldn't believe it. Like I, because because I mean the, I mean we knew that this might happen, uh, you know, but then. I thought like, okay, this would be like very like stupid to, you know, for something like that to happen. And, uh, and I couldn't believe it. But then the first, like the first, really the first reaction for me was like, I mean, it wasn't about my work or, you know, it wasn't about how I was going to cover it. It was about, it was I immediately went to my uh, social media and uh, went to my phone and I just like clean up. I deleted mm. all the, uh, you know, sensitive stuff that I've posted in the past. And I, you know, and then I also like clean up my place, um, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's, I, I just wanted to make sure, you know, at that point, I wasn't sure, I, you know, like I, I wanted to prioritize um, my safety and the safety of my family first. And then, uh, you know, so I had to clean up the house. Um, and after that, like we like went out uh, to, to get some money at the ATM machines. There's like always, you know, all these like um, long lines of people. Um, and then, you know, it was the, on the, uh, the, the scenes on the street was like very chaotic because I could see that many people um, like were also just like me, like they couldn't believe that this has happened and people were not sure what's going to happen, you know, what is it going to be like, um, you know, so I could see like all elderly, like 
um, like elderly elderly people, like also like you know like grabbing like uh, rice and eggs and oil and whatever they can, you know, like to stock at home. So uh, that was the scene, and I I wanted to photograph that, but uh, but at the same time I had to do like you know what I need to do for my family as well, um, because I'm also part of this, and also I wasn't sure whether like you know at, at that stage I, I wasn't sure whether. Uh, like you know, my profession is like still exists, you know, like uh, safely or not. Um, but then, like by midday, uh, like um, after I've done what I needed to do uh, for for home, there was a scene that I wouldn't forget. Like I, I would, you know, there was some music, um, some uh, proper, you know, like some songs uh, playing, like uh, loud music. It was the pro-military songs and you know national mm-hmm. songs. Mm-hmm. And there was like this, like hundreds of uh, people, you know, gr- a group of people, like uh, walking out of this place, and they were all, you know, it's it was in a line, and they were all like uh, kind of cheering and and uh, marching mm-hmm. in uh, in a celebratory like feeling. That was when I saw that, I felt it was really like eerie, and it was, you know, I it was really strange. And I that moment, I just started like taking pictures. I didn't care. And then, you know, I just started taking pictures of these people, these, you know, pro-military supporters. And, and then, um, you know, I started like taking, and, and, and that, at that point I said, okay, I got to take, you know, I got to document this. I got to take pictures. And then I replied to my editor who, you know, since early morning asked me if you, if I want to work with them. And I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to work. And since that day, I started uh, photographing the coup and the protests, uh, that, the events that follow for the next two and a half months, three months. Yeah, every day I was on the streets mm. photographing mm. the events that followed. Mm. So in your previous work, you were going to places like the Jade Mines and the Rohingya camps and other places where there are some really bad things happening in society to disadvantage people, vulnerable people that you were there trying to document and to bring back not only to the world, but to your own people back in the, in the cities and Bamar society. And now you find yourself in a place where your own society, your country, your community, everything is unraveling month by month, day by day, and you're documenting it as a photojournalist. So what was that experience like to be so close and personal, to not be an outsider in someone else's uh, situation, perhaps unfortunate set of events, but actually to be a, a documenter as well as a participant in your own society starting to come apart? Well, um, I had to like it was so since the day one. Um, I mean, so so on the first day, I was busy trying to you know like with, with, I was it was it was all like very confusing, but at the same time, I had to deliver my pictures. I had mm. to do my work, and you know, I I wasn't sure whether it's uh, it's you know like how safe it is to work as a photojournalist uh, or not. You know, it's so I didn't have so much time to think. Um, but then on the second day, it was there was I remember people started like uh, making you know in the evening um, pe- the, the people started making the the metal noise uh, campaign uh, you know like hitting pots and pans to make the metal noise um, in the evening and this was when I felt like okay I you know, it's really like um, it's really like amazing to to hear people do that and you know to see to witness this. 
and at a, so you know I feel, I felt like I want to join and participate as well, but at the same time uh, that you know I that, that's when I had to ask myself like okay do I want to like um, be you know do I want to um, you know what do I do like uh, mm-hmm. do I want to be a journalist who um, or photographer who documents this um, you know or do I want to be involved personally as uh, you know so it's that's why I had to like kind of draw the line and I made it made a decision I, I made a decision to just be um, you know objective and neutral and I just you know because it's it's especially in a story like this it, uh, it's really important that I just do my job uh, because uh, you know because I mean, like, I believe that, like, you know, like we have like different roles, many different roles to play in this whole thing. And for me, my role is just to document, um, you know, what happens next, and 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 to do that safely, I need to be like, you know, ethically, um, you know, very careful, and you know, w- with the lines that I might be crossing, you know. So, you know, I, I just I decided to just like, you know document that so it's 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 very like so for example uh, you know in the next days or weeks to come there's like moments where like you know there's a lot of uh, people you know there was uh, this first couple of weeks of the protests uh, that almost felt like celebrations rather than protests because you know mm-hmm. it was just so many different uh, groups of people coming together um for you know and for one cause and it was for me like it, uh, I, I had a lot of feelings, uh, mixed feelings as well. Um, you know, like I, I would admit, like you know, uh, very often I felt, you know, I felt the temptation to join, uh, but then at the same time I couldn't do that. Like you know, when I'm working um, for a big uh, news organization and when I want to be a journalist, who just does my job. Like so, you know, it's it, it was quite tough. Uh, but then I, you know, I, I got used to it. I got. Um, as the story gets complicated, as the crackdown started, there was like more, you know, more and more important things happening, and I realized that for me, it was, it's more important to you know keep photographing what happens. Yeah. Mm, yeah, and you mentioned wanting to be objective in your work as a photographer, and yet, especially in that early period when the coup and the crackdown was happening. It's, uh, I, I think many observers would overwhelmingly feel that this, that there, there wasn't a definite evil and bad on one side. And so how did you strive to be impartial and objective when one side was just displaying tactics and mindsets and strategies that, for lack of a better word, or maybe there is no better word, at least in my opinion, just pure evil that was coming out of it? Yeah, um... <laughs> Like yeah, no, it's 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 you're right. Like I, I mean, they're often very, very uh, you know moments. Uh, like especially because I, you know, like when when the crackdown started, um, you know, it was like very brutal, and uh, it was very, you know I I have never ever seen in my life like you know something like this happening, mm. um, you know, in my own country. I mean, mm. I, I know that there was the 1988 revolution, and there was also like you know uh, brutal crackdowns back then, but this is for me the first time um, like I mean there was the saffron revolution in 2007 but back then um, it was like it didn't go on for like weeks it was only uh, for you know a shorter period of time it was just for a few days but uh, this time it went on and on and I I, I photographed at least like uh, a few dozens funerals uh, many people deaths and and you know many people injured 
you know, it's it's very like um, I get very emotional. Um, but I, 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 for me, at the at the at these times, I just you know whenever it gets like difficult, like uh, like that, like I, you know, from I just keep telling myself, okay, like just try to make the you know, like just try to make the picture, uh, you know, just focus focus in my viewfinder and you know try to capture what's happening and try to. Um, you know, like symbolize uh, in the best way possible of like you know of of the atrocities that was um, happening and and uh, and of course like there are times where I couldn't like it's you know it was too too intense that I couldn't uh, you know keep keep shooting like for example there was this funeral of a of a of a protester that that was killed in uh, North Oklahoma like and 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 his his daughter five year old daughter was crying at the funeral. And, and uh, she, like she, you know, it was like it was just a child like crying, but I could see that she understood. Um, she she wasn't crying like you know just like a child. She she understood, uh, you know that she, you know, her loss and that you know like she she really understood what was happening. And you know, like at that moment, I just I, I had to stop like taking the picture. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad you mentioned this emotional element of it because, uh, on my side, when you you would send me the links of your work so I could prepare for the interview, and I looked through all the different articles and and pictures and whatnot, and when I got to the pictures on the coup, I I, I was overwhelmed. I mean, I I'd, I'd seen these pictures before, some of them probably yours exactly, and some just general, but I haven't seen them for a while, and I started crying during some of the pictures I was seeing. You know, I I. Uh, I, I just broke down in a couple of them and it just brought back these memories of how it felt at the time of seeing these, these vulnerable people that, that, that just wanted freedom and were just doing whatever they could to resist against an organized military and to see them, you know, to see them wearing cheap plastic hard hats that aren't going to stop anything and, you know, makeshift masks that they're wearing and, and whatever, you can't even call it body armor, whatever, whatever they, they kind of patch together in hopes of preventing whatever injury i mean it just it just tore me up seeing this that you know that people had to be put in this position and that and that these people were you know they're coming from being you know bike mechanics or taxi drivers or university students or waiters or businessmen or whatever else they were and that they're now having to to dress themselves and prepare themselves uh, for this absolute cruelty and and these you know and your 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 pictures do a, a, an an excellent job it's somewhat ironic compliment because it does an excellent job bringing out the the pathos and the um and the pain and the suffering of what you're seeing but just reminding me of of what of the unfairness and the inequity and the the, the rage of seeing these people having me put in this position and and being so vulnerable and being captured being so vulnerable against such a terror that was coming at them and it uh you know it brought that all back seeing that and it also made me reflect on the fact that we're not seeing these pictures today you know the 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 terror is not stopping and the pain and the suffering are not stopping but we're not the the, the world's attention was really drawn First by the kind of parade protest atmosphere you you mentioned, and then by the the crackdown and the terror. But the world's attention was really drawn by the power and the drama of these these contrasting pictures, and especially you know the pictures that just made your heart bleed and made you made people tear up, and the stories that went behind them. That they were really grabbing 
the world's attention for a period of time. And that wasn't going to be forever. The world has a very short attention span, but it was speaking. And it made me reflect on the fact that I don't feel like I've seen a picture recently from the protests in Myanmar that have, that have grabbed my emotion in the same way for some time. And, and that doesn't mean these things are happening. They're just happening outside of a lot of journalists and photojournalists being able to capture it the way it was before. So for th this is more of the, 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 the opinion and the, um, uh, the, the feeling of someone who's more removed from this, but this is your country and your profession. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the kind of images that were being captured and coming out at that time and where we are today with that. Well, um, you yeah, know, it's it's like during these days, uh, like, I mean, to be honest, I, I didn't actually have time to really reflect on, uh, you know, and on, 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 you know, on the things that I was seeing every day. And it was because every day, like I was on the streets, um, I was out there, um, you know, trying to be at the place that I need to be. Like, you know, so every morning I was um, wondering Where's the crackdown going to happen? Where's the place? You know, it's that's that's you know, like it's it, it was almost like I was you know, I, I, but I, it was important for me, like you know, to to, to be at the place where it gets more uh, most like um, you know, like dangerous and deadly. You know, so I would leave home in the more early morning, uh, grab my breakfast, and you know, like you know, like go to different places. Uh, you know, and 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 I would like you know, like, to be honest, it's I, I was I was by chance I would you know mostly by chance I was there at the major places of crackdown, and 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 then I would come back uh, you know late in the evening I would need to edit and I would need to file uh, so that the pictures get published, and you know so it, it, it carried on like that for like two and a half months until. Um, by mid-April, I remember, like that's when the the protests almost stopped. Uh, you know, because it was just getting too deadly, and every every you know um, every, every time there is a protest, there is like somebody dying, somebody shot and killed. Um, so it was just getting too dangerous, risky. So you know, and and the, so there was like uh, protesters. Um, there was no more protesters on the streets, and you know things kind of like quieted down. And and that and that at that moment, um, it's you know I started like feeling uh, having you know like I, I started having reflections on what I saw over the past like weeks. And it's to be honest, like it was quite scary, and you know because there was also like a lot of close calls that I, you know, that, that I, I mean, I, I got almost arrested at some point. Um, there was one time when I was uh, like photographing a group of protesters, um, like posting a signboard in the, in the center of the city. And I was photographing them. And then I saw like two military trucks coming and they, like, you know, and, and when I saw them, like I immediately got onto my car and started the engine but it was a little too late because one of the trucks, uh, they it bumped uh, my car. It hit my car, uh, like you, to try to stop me from going away. And at that point, I was just thinking, no, I can't. I can't be arrested. I can't be arrested. And I, I and and then I mean, I didn't have time to even think. Like it just, I already, you know, my foot already, like you know, gas, um, uh, you know, um, like get, you know, stepped on the gas uh, to the bottom, and I just like drove away, and I managed to escape. 
but you know there was like there was uh, like other like close calls as well. But but like when I stopped working, I mean I, I didn't realize all this, uh, you know how scary it was, or you know how dangerous or risky it was. But only after I stopped working, and you know all these things started reflecting. And uh, yeah, you know when, when there was this like eerie normality and silence that uh, that I couldn't uh, even photograph because because like that point like in in late April and May and the following months it became almost impossible for us to you know go out on the streets with a camera. Um, so at that point I started like so I'm not you know I I tried not to be involved in any other activity rather than my job. So. Uh, like at that point, I become like a civilian or, or journalist who's not working anymore. And at that point, I you know, started to get a little scary. Yeah, because even though I didn't do any, like, um, like any, you know, and an, any like an, unlawful thing or any sin, but you know, it's it, it felt like I've done things uh, that are wrong. <laughs> but you know, it was, it, I was probably just being paranoid as well. You know. Yeah, well, that feeling that you're doing something wrong, I mean, that's the self-censorship of a totalitarian society that you start to rein yourself in. And, you know, I was um, I was in Myanmar for many years before the transition, and although I'm privileged in, in being a foreigner and not having the same level of, uh, by any means, of, of danger as a local Burmese, I, I, did ha I did spend years having to watch everything I did, every conversation I had, everything I threw in the trash can, every electronic communication, every phone conversation. Every, every, everything that was done, you know, every conversation that was done in a public place, and there was this really strange feeling of living in a totalitarian state where, um, if I would, I, I would, I would constantly have this balance of, on one hand, feeling if I, if I wasn't talking about certain things that I wanted to say, or I was censoring myself too much, I would feel uh, kind of cowardly and, and silent. And then the minute that I crossed over that line and started to say something, anything, even something very small, I would feel uh, guilty and um, and a little bit nervous that I had gone too far. And it was like I couldn't, I was either on one side or the other. I either felt I either felt guilty and, and nervous or I felt, you know, cowardly and um, and silenced. And I, I just had to realize, well, this is kind of the, um, the, the, the experience that comes in living in a place like this where you just, you have to censor and watch every single thing you do and you start to take responsibility for, um, um, for or you, you, you know, I would start to feel kind of bad or guilty about things that should not be uh, uh, an issue in any any other country in the world. But, you know, you just internalize this kind of um, dysfunctional logic here. Right. Yeah. No. It's. Uh, it's. 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 Exactly. And it, it's. I. Um, yeah. No. You know. But. But. But then at the same time, like, um, I. I was. It was, for me. Like I. I. It, it was just. You know. It's. It's my. Um, I just have to deal with it. You know. I. I have to deal with, it myself, and I just have to make sure that I'm ready. You know. When the. You know. When I. When I can like photograph again, and when I can. When things happen that I can document again, um, and at the same, you know, and, and after that, like we had like COVID uh, in July, um, in, Ju in June and July, and you know, like because uh, the past year we had COVID as well, but it wasn't that um, serious uh, compared to many other countries. And this year we had like a really 
uh, very scary like COVID episode and and, um, and and that was like that kind of distracted everything away because everybody got sick like yeah. my parents got sick my sister got sick yeah. all, you know I don't know and almost anyone uh, like who doesn't have a family member sick at home so you know then it, it, it got all of us like distracted away for for a month or two there um, yeah like so it's it, but then I I think it was yeah after you know like luckily like you know i i uh, we survive it and um but yeah like it's it's you know we 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 had a we had a rough year yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, to say to say it lightly, uh, you know, and tagging on to my reaction, the emotional reaction I had looking at your pictures recently of February, March, uh, uh, that happened in the same week that something else happened that was quite interesting to reflect on these together, that we have close friends who were nuns and um, uh, soldiers climbed the walls of the nunnery at midnight and they stormed into the nunnery and attacked. Um, based on uh, based on someone who had informed on them for for um, for some association or something that you know who knows, but they uh, they they stormed in at midnight. They were not wearing uniforms and they just had um, normal clothes and uh, and weapons. And when the head nun asked them who they were, why they were there at midnight, they just started hitting her over the head with the gun and they started attacking the other nuns and. Uh, and these images and videos were were sent to me as we were trying to, to help them with medical and the trauma. There, you know, about fifteen um, young nuns, you know, ranging from you know six, seven years old in a nunnery, who were you know completely traumatized by seeing their their caregiver uh, treated like this. But the 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 images and the videos came to us, and they were they were. <laughs> it's hard even describing this. I mean, it was so bad. But I images of a um, the nuns' robes that were taken off and and put on the floor later and photographed, and it was just this this dark crimson red all over the robes, and seeing that contrast uh, along with the videos of the screaming, the yelling, the shooting, the beating, uh, as one friend who's been in conflict zones told me, it's actually worse to hear someone else being beaten than to be beaten yourself, and so this and and this also, you know, these this single picture of this nun this this these pink nuns robes covered in blood laying on the floor you know this also as your pictures just drove me to tears and knowing the story behind it not just the picture but knowing the story behind it it was so and 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 so this made me reflect like i i know these things are happening i deal with i'm 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 involved every day with as much as i can from being abroad and helping in any way i can and yet somehow seeing this single picture and knowing the story behind it affected me in ways that I hadn't been affected for months and months, you know, just touched some part of me that just drove, you know, the motivation, the anger, the, the, the tears, just everything. And it just, it sounds simple and obvious to say, but it's just that a single image does so much, you know, and of course, Vietnam War was, uh, their images that will live in the American mindset forever of how, um, of they're, they're just burned and etched in our memory of, of certain things that were able to be caught. And so it, it, both of these things, you're, your early pictures and this recent incident with the nuns, 
it makes me reflect on the role that photojournalism can play and the need to, in some ways, it feels kind of unfortunate because, like, you have to go to places as a photojournalist where you expect evil to transpire. You have to go to places where you expect people to be um, to be to be brutally attacked and and worse, possibly killed. And you have to try to take these pictures of the worst possible suffering and tragedy. And and yet these are the images that will speak to people somehow simply knowing what is happening, hearing the stories and hearing the information, hearing the data or the details of operation or things that are happening. Somehow a single image can still change the course of history. And so you cannot underestimate the importance of getting these images that can turn public opinion you know, somewhere else, uh, not, not, not to suggest miracles, but that can at least raise the level of awareness or engagement or involvement and in seeing something so terrible transpire that just doesn't, um, uh, that just can't happen without seeing that image. And so I wonder what your thoughts are on this being your profession of that contrast of the the importance of the uh, of of finding these kind of images as they happen documenting the reality and yet the the tragedy of having to uh you know of having to 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 document something that is just terrible for everyone involved for the experience of it happening and and for everyone to have to witness it happening and you know when i shared that the pictures of the nun's robe and blood on my social media went viral to a small degree, um, at least as far as my platform is. And it was that kind of feeling. Like, I have shared something that no one is going to like to see, that everyone is going to feel pain with. And yet, this has to be shared for them to feel like I do. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on all that. Well, um, it's, I mean, of course, like this, there was so many different, Thing, you know, evil, like bad, you know, bad things happening in many different places, and I couldn't. I could only go to one place at a time, and uh, so it's, and 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 we had like you know there were like many photographers and photojournalists. It's not just me, like you know many other photojournalists were like working as you know like, taking you know as the same risk, if not more, as me, and you know we were all like trying to tell like you know do our job like in different places and trying to capture what was happening but for me it was it's really important um to like, it's not just like capturing um you know what's happening in front of you or like you know just pressing the shutter button it's 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 also to try and like you know you see that all you see all these um like uh tra- you know suffering atrocities tragedy brutal crackdowns but if 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 the picture so you, for me I, it's really important to get the picture which really uh, summarize or, or, or in a way symbolize um, if it, you know symbol symbolize the, the you know the, the you know the, the 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 event that happened it's not just like a picture of the event it's also it's it's to you know I really need to try and make like pictures that will be like iconic for you know what what was happening or you know for that would uh, visually symbolize um what was you know, what was happening you know the courage of the people and the suffering that the, the crackdown the deaths and you know so for ev- for each topic for each uh, yeah. angle of the story i i needed one like i mean of, of of course i was taking like thousands of pictures every day hundreds and thousands but i i would in the end it's important for me to like have like one picture that would tell the best of like okay the protests the 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 the, the, the battles and then the 
yeah, the killings, the deaths, the funerals, uh, the nighttime like candlelight vigils. And so I need to have like one picture that's strong for each topic. Mm-hmm. And that was quite, but, but, you know, um, but then the difference this time is like, it's, um, you know, unlike the the previous revolutions the country had, um, it's this time like everybody has a mobile phone and everybody can take pictures. Uh, so even if it's not a professional like me or like all my colleagues, it's it's we are still it's it's really amazing and really I think it's really good that we are still seeing pictures even in these times and these months uh, these recent months where like it's very difficult for professional photojournalists or journalists to go and uh, go and you know take pictures in places like we're still seeing pictures from uh, you know even like very remote areas of the country it's you know it's it's um, of course like thanks to the uh, like the mobile phones and technology so it's and also the people who can you know who don't you know who know that when they see something happening they should like you know document it um so you know it's 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 really um i think it's really good that you know this this is still being documented yeah yeah sure and you referenced one of the pictures that you took that really struck you and and stayed with you was this funeral of a father and the five-year-old who seemed to have some awareness of what was happening. Are there any other pictures that from that period that really have stayed with you till today? Well, um, there was this picture of um, the protest. It's, it's from the early day or early days on um, when like it was near the city hall um, in, in Yangon and like there was like, a line of policemen just standing guard and there's like there's like barricades and on the on the on the other side of the barricades it's it's all these people like protesting and and shouting and uh, and actually like they were all these people uh, this was the early days uh maybe like a couple of weeks uh, no not like only a few days um from you know since the protest started and this was the it was the moment when like many people like people were shouting like people's police people's police and trying to convince the police to you know to stand with the people um, instead of like following orders from the military and you know I, I think like that picture really kind of um, stayed with me as well because it's it it really kind of uh, you know like. Uh, symbolizes the you know the protest that was happening you know people were actually trying to convince the police to be with them you know it's i thought that was really special you know really interesting well yeah no and then uh and yeah no it's it's i i I, there was a lot of like it's a lot of funerals and so but then also like you know one picture of the uh the um you know the, the 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 crackdown, which is with you know you have, there's this picture with all this like smoke and uh, tear gas and uh, and then and then like protesters are like defending back with like firecrackers and and fire extinguishers. Uh, so you know that scene is also like quite remarkable for me. Yeah. So you've said before that you're not into being political, uh, meaning like abdicating the right and wrong of things, but rather showing the impact of policies. You you made that reference before the coup regarding the work you were doing with Rohingya, Jade Mines, everything else. I'm curious if that mindset still animates your work today with the coup, or have you taken on a different feeling with the work you're doing? Well, um, I, I just know that like, you know, so for me, um, 
like in, since the early days, I had to think like, okay, what do I want to like? What's the most important thing for me? And it's uh, like, firstly, in this situation, I think um, like to like you know to, to to be able to do my work uh, safely. It's like the priority, and you know, for also for the safety of my family, of course. Like you know, I, and and I think it's 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 just like. It's more than like what I feel personally this time. I feel because you know it's I'm also part of the story. Like uh, even though I'm just like uh, you know I'm just doing my work as a photojournalist, I'm I'm also part of the story because it's it also affects me and my family and my friends and my environment. You know, so it's 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 like it's impossible to say I'm not like you know personally involved, but at the same time, like for my job, it's just it you know like. When the um, so when the authorities or when the military they want to they want to like accuse um, like journalists you know w w when they arrest like journalists what what they want to say is that you know yet yeah, journalists are not just like doing the job but also like involved and uh, and you know doing more than the journalists should do you know, but but uh, you know for that reason I have to I have to be like very careful with you know with the limits and with, with the with the way I work and you know what the activities that I do, um, so yeah, no, I just try. I mean, this is all like it's 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 very important for me because I I want to be able to keep working. Yeah. Uh, so moving today and getting caught up to speed, you were the unanimous winner at the Bayou War Correspondents Award. This was launched after Normandy and uh, Normandy invasions and the press came along and was able to photograph and record that. And it, it's really in a war that celebrates the freedom of the press, especially in under difficult circumstances. And you're the unanimous winner of this prestigious award, and yet you could not publicly accept the honor. You you couldn't even be named for it. Uh, what was it like having to accept this award anonymously for all of the hard work that you've done, and not be able to reveal your name with it? Well, I actually it was it was quite weird. I, I mean, I've had like a few awards before, and I and it's it's but this is the first time I I'm uh, you know I've, it's you know I've had it like anonymously, and it's it. But actually, it, I mean, of course, it's like it's a bit like weird, and I you know it's, but I but more importantly, I I it's I I think I'm. And I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I think it's better this way, and it's I'm prouder because, um, like, it's, you know, the I'm anonymous, but it's, it's not just. I feel that it's not just me. The prize is being awarded to, like, because uh, there's all these like other photojournalists. Me, I'm a photojournalist. Uh, in, in, you know, like who have been like risking a lot, and would you know every day face like you know like. Like life risk, and you know, they, they, despite all the risk, like they keep going there and working. And you know, so we all share the same risk, and everybody work, uh, you know, like as you know, as as best as we can to you know to tell the story, to document this. So I think the anonymity kind of um, it's important in that way that you know it's it kind of represents not not just me as one photographer, but it's even though it's just it's the the award is for my work, but it's it, it represents like all the other uh, like fellow journalists, uh, fellow photo, photo, photographers, and photojournalists back home who've been like doing 
the work, um, you know, as much as I, I've been doing. Yeah, yeah, right. That's really a beautiful answer and recognizing the achievements and the sacrifices that others have made in the in the profession is I imagine it must be somewhat strange to be to disassociate yourself with a career you've worked so hard for and built up and at this time you uh, the the work you're doing has to be separated with everything you've actually done to get to this point yeah well um i mean like i'm I'm just happy that i can uh, i'm just happy that like the anonymity also helps uh me to be in a way to you know to keep being to keep staying safe and uh and and when the time and opportunity comes to for me to be able to keep working and like for me that's the most important thing right now you know just you know to you know like it's to 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 keep like to to keep uh being able to stay safely and uh and you know like and try and work when i can you know that's that's a priority Okay, so at the moment, you're outside of Myanmar. You've received this very prestigious award, and you're choosing to go back into the country knowing the dangers and the conflict and continue your profession. Can you share a bit about your thinking and your reasoning of, of why you're choosing to go back into a conflict zone and continue on the work of documenting it? Well, I... I think um, so. So you know, like I, I really, I needed to come out because um, you know, not, not because I wanted to like run or uh, escape from it, but it was more because I, I want, I, I needed uh, a break, and I needed, I, I felt like I needed a distance from you know, like because it was, I was too inside, too much inside the story, and too much part of the story, and I, for a few months, I couldn't uh, also, you know, I, I wasn't able to photograph anything. Um, so you know, it's. I think it was important for me to to take a fresh, um, you know, like fresh perspective. And 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 I. But then I realized I. It's you know because I see that there's still some chance for me uh, to go back and to you know to to try and uh, maintain my safety and like to to try and you know I just have to find a new approach, um, you know, to keep telling the story. So I and I whenever there's still a chance, like, I really want to take it and I really want to go back. And I, that's why, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to, to go back to Myanmar and, and as soon as I can. And, you know, as, as, and, and I'll, I plan to be there as long as I can live there, like safely, um, you know, to keep working as a, as a photographer. Yeah. I see. I see. We really wish you the best of luck and safety in going back there and continue to support you and everyone and all we can from this platform. And want to thank you for coming on, but more importantly, just want to thank you for your work of documenting the reality that you're seeing, that as I've referenced in my emotional reaction to seeing things I already knew and this emotional reaction to this picture of the nun's robes in blood, that there is, I don't have to tell you this, there is a power in the image and your work and documenting and capturing that power of the image in what you've already done and what you're going on to do and the sacrifices you're making in doing so. You are bringing the reality of the scene to so many people and touching them in ways you'll probably never know. And for those that have been moved by that, it's a, a, a thank you and a recognition from so many for, um, for being able to, to do that work. Well, no, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak uh, at Inside Myanmar as well. Yeah. 
after today's discussion, it should be clear to everyone just how dire the situation is in Myanmar. We are doing our best to shine a light on the ongoing crisis, and we thank you for taking the time to listen. If you found today's talk of value, please consider passing it along to friends in your network. And because our nonprofit is now in a position to transfer funds directly to the protest movement, please also consider letting others know that there is now a way to give that supports the most vulnerable and to those who are especially impacted by this organized state terror. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are resisting the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Every cent goes immediately and directly to funding those local communities who need it most. Donations go to support such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, and the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies. Or if you prefer, you can earmark your donation to go directly to the guest you just heard on today's show. In order to facilitate this donation work, we have registered a new nonprofit called Better Burma for this express purpose. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is now directed to this fund. Alternatively, you can visit our new Better Burma website, which is betterburmaoneword.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause, and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at In all cases, that's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration.